Howdy strangers and welcome back to High Strangeness, a podcast about beliefs and the people that believe them. This week on the show we are talking to psychedelic integration coach Moshe Jacobson. We are going to talk a little bit more about the law of attraction, why gravity is fake, and obviously we're going to talk a lot about psychedelics. It's a ton of fun. He's very warm, inviting, lovely. You're going to enjoy it. It gets real weird, but hang in there with us because it is a hell of a roller coaster. And that starts right now. Yeah. Whereabouts do you live? I live in East Atlanta, right near East Atlanta Village, um, kind of closer to Gresham Park. Mm -hmm. What about you? I'm right in Old Fourth Ward, just south of Midtown. Pretty cool area. I I really, really enjoy it. I'm next to everything. I I have everything within walking distance or, or... or at least biking distance. So it's a, it's it used to be a pretty pretty low income sketchy area of town, and now now it's actually quite on the rise. Yeah, I when I first moved to Atlanta, I worked for Bird Scooters, which don't get me started on Bird Scooters. But I worked as a scooter mechanic for them, and my area was in Inman Park in Old Fourth Ward, and I I got I don't know I spent a lot of time there, and I really enjoyed it. I think that that is a great part of town, and I would love to live somewhere over in that area someday. But then I also think I like that I can retire to my apartment and be away from everything, even if like you you know you go inside your house and you're alone, but for some reason if I know that there's like a church's chicken right next to me or something. It's like, well, there's just mm-hmm. people. I'm sharing vibes with those people. They're right next to me getting chicken 24-7. At least I know my neighbors are quiet people, or they were quiet people. I had a cop move in a month before I left to the apartment next to mine, which has really drastically changed the reasons that I go outside. Mm-hmm. And he's just the worst neighbor. I mean, I'm not a not like a big fan of the police, but this guy specifically, first off, he parks his Dodge Charger in my parking spot and I don't know how to tell him not to and he always has people over at like two or three in the morning he's always really loud like aren't you like if I needed to call somebody because they were disturbing the police you would be the person and you're the loud person hmm, that's frustrating yeah I feel like I'm, I'm I'm talking your ear off Moshe give me some of your background well it's an interesting question because I never know where to start well <clears throat> I was raised Jewish and in, in I've lived in Atlanta metro Atlanta my whole life and after going to Jewish school for 11 years and then Georgia Tech and then starting to work in the software industry, I decided I needed to try something new. I, I spent a year in Spain, did a little bit of finding myself, uh, taught some English for a year. And when I came back, uh, that's when I really started finding my own path. And that path first started with cannabis and then started with uh, well, hold eating- on, on. Did you not try cannabis until you were out of college? It's true. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah, Keep I going. was a very I late bloomer. Clarification there. In in fact, in fact, uh, I'll I'll be vulnerable on the air, uh, even though we're not actually on the air, and say uh, I didn't lose my virginity till I was like twenty one. So I was I was very late bloomer. I think that's a lot more normal than people realize, though. Yeah. Well. People don't talk about it that much, so I figure I figure if if, if I can be vulnerable and say it, maybe no, it'll, please. It'll, it'll normalize it. You know, we're trying to we're breaking the big stories here on high strangeness, and if that <laughs> big story is is when Moshe Jacobson lost his innocence, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, I'm yeah. sorry I cut you off. So you you were a late bloomer to cannabis. Yeah, so I started using cannabis around 25, which is also the same. 
around the same time that I started eating non-kosher, because back before that time, I had never eaten any pig products. Mm-hmm. And I had bacon for the first time when I was 25, and it changed my world. Bacon is still- phenomenal. Oh, yeah. It's still my favorite meat product, I'd say. Bacon. Is a little I, bit, is it there, like, is it the salt in the stew where you're like, I just feel a little bad eating it and that makes it taste so much better? You know, I've gotten overall feelings of guilt, but I am mostly vegetarian now. I do try to avoid meat, but it's not strict. Mm-hmm. After that, I decided uh, I was going to teach at a school. I taught at a, it was still a Jewish school. So here I am still pretty closely tied into my Jewish heritage. I was still pretty conservative at the time. After teaching at the school for four years, oh yeah, so during the summers of teaching at this school, I ended up doing cool things like going on road trips. I I went on two road trips around the US. And then the third year, the third summer, I learned about backpacking. I I went for a month in the wilderness straight with with an organization called Knowles. It's National Outdoor Leadership School. And that was a phenomenal experience. And uh, I got to learn leadership and preparedness. And I got my woofer certification, which is wilderness first responder. So it it really helped me grow into a more leadership position. And then after that job was over, after after actually, uh, I started working for a software company uh, from the friend whose house I'm at right now. I worked there for eight years. and, And during that time is when I found psychedelics. So in 2012, I think, was the first time I tried a psychedelic, and it was really, really eye-opening. Do you mind if I ask what your first one was? It, uh, yeah, I, it was LSD, and Classic. I, think I took two, two tabs of LSD. That was with a girl that I had met at a party just a couple days earlier, and she decided we should get together and try this stuff together. We spent all day tripping our butts off together. And uh, it, it was crazy. It was really, really crazy. I had never experienced anything like that before. I, I literally saw into the ends of the universe and I realized profoundly and directly that this very moment that I was in was a culmination of all of the history of the entire universe forever. And all of that came and culminated into this very moment and how everything else that happened in the entire universe would be affected by this moment as well. So it was really eye-opening and mind-expanding. She and I ended up going out after that. It was it was weird because I, you know nothing happened that day and I didn't really feel an attraction, but ended up where we went out for two years and used psychedelics together every probably month or so. I didn't know about using it therapeutically at that time. That wasn't a thing for me back then, but I knew that it was helpful helpful and that it helped us connect and it helped us communicate. And I knew that I was becoming a better person. I could just tell that I was becoming more patient, more compassionate, and more open-minded, I think. After she and I broke up, I had really nobody to share this with. I didn't know anybody else who used psychedelics. And that's when I decided after listening to another podcast, uh, The Psychedelic Salon, where they mentioned the Psychedelic Society of San Francisco, which I think is probably one of the oldest, I said, well, I wonder if there's anything like that in Atlanta. And so I did some searching. I found nothing. And by that time, I had just started another meetup group for a database topic because I was still in the technology industry at that time. And I said, okay, well, I'll just start another meetup, see what happens. Sure enough, people started signing up and we just met every month at a restaurant and just sat around a table and talked. It was really low key. Ever since then, it's Sci Atlanta has been growing and growing. That was in 2015 that I started it. Now we're, I think at around 1800 members. It's doing better than ever. 
now with COVID, we can't meet in person so much. So I'm doing online meetings, but it's evolved from a simple meet over food at a restaurant to now we're doing talks, lecture style talks. And we're also having integration meetings, which is what I lead. It's kind of a safe space for people to come and meet and talk about their questions and their concerns. And it's what I call talk healing. Well, what a lot of people call talk healing. And the idea is that you just talk through the things that are going on for you. And it it's very healing just to be able to share share the difficult things that are going on in our lives and have somebody there or a group of people there just listening compassionately without even offering advice or, or trying to trying to intervene in any way. So that's uh, that's about where we're at right now. Every every week I do these integration meetings. I've gone from the integration meetings now to where uh, I'm helping people through their psychedelic journeys. And so now people who are suffering from trauma, from depression, from anxiety, addiction, OCD, all of these things, and, and even just people who want to uncover the next better version of themselves, they come to me to help them prepare for their journey and to help them to, to be with them during their medicine journey and then to help them integrate afterwards. And so it's uh, it's a very rewarding work that I'm doing now. And this is this is kind of what I'm doing full time after I left my software job. And so now I'm fully in the work of wellness coaching. So it's 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 a brave new world. And this is something that's at the leading edge of what's happening right now in healthcare. Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, that the phrasing is thrown around a lot, but it does feel like we're in the middle of a psychedelic renaissance. Mm -hmm. Not only is there a lot of research being done and a lot of studies being published, but there's just a lot of representation in the media. You have TV shows and Mm -hmm. documentaries and music projects and things that are really exploring what it means in a way that maybe we didn't have before. I know that they were an agent of the counterculture in their first renaissance. But I think that we're seeing now increasingly that people who are interested in psychedelics are largely of the counterculture, but are not exclusively of the counterculture in regards to micro dosing and Steve Mm -hmm. Jobs of the worlds. Right. You know, if nothing else, if it doesn't change anything about you other than like kick the spider webs off, kick like the mental cobwebs off the the trap of your ego that you've lived in your Mm -hmm. whole life where you're just you think that you are this one version of you and, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you can't be anything else other than the thing that you are right now, whether that's depressed or anxious or suffer from any other, you know, and I'm not saying that there's definitely people who clinically need to take antidepressants and, you know, anti-anxiety medications and stuff like that. But like for me, I was on a lot of stuff like that and I didn't necessarily need to be like, I just was stuck in, this is the thing that will numb me from feeling my my full breadth of experience. And that's what I need Mm -hmm. right now. And then I learned to live inside of my own experience and to appreciate the moment that I'm living in, which I think is sort of similar to what you were saying when you say like, the moment that you're in is the culmination of all of the previous moments. And in that way, it's it's all we have is that moment that we're we're in. And that's uh, definitely how I try and approach life right now. And I know some people get something totally different out of it. But like, that's probably the biggest thing for me, I was able to personally forgive myself for some things that I had been through and done and some things that I had done to other people. And I had just been holding on to them, even though it had been years, but I just wasn't able to like look at myself in the mirror and, and see anything other than the person who I used to be. And when I was able to forgive myself and let go of that person and realize that I'm not that person anymore, that I am, I am something new. I'm the process and consciousness living in the moment that is looking in the mirror. I was able to start making a lot of positive changes in my life. Oh yeah, absolutely. Psychedelics can really help us 
rebuild our minds, our, our neural connections in a way that allows us to believe new things about ourselves, release old beliefs, form new patterns, release old patterns. They're not for just the counterculture, you know. Uh, I've worked with I've worked with all sorts of different people from all walks of life. People in their 70s, people in their 20s, people people rich and poor and it's something that can really help everybody. I also just believe that they're they're very powerful agents of change. So this is this is why the I I do the work that I do. I think it's super cool. I think like we're on the precipice of a new set of career fields that we maybe didn't even comprehend as being jobs that a person could have beforehand. I don't want to say like oh this is a new job. This has never been done because I'm sure that like people who are involved in ayahuasca ceremonies and other parts of the world are like, hey, we've been doing this for forever. Don't act like you invented this. Uh, right. And, and you even said the, the, the first psychedelic renaissance, which I think is a great way to refer to the 70s, because psychedelic medicine has been in use by indigenous cultures all around the world for eons, well, thousands of years. Mm -hmm. South America, Mexico, uh, Siberia, I mean, everywhere. Yeah. In a way, it's sort of interesting that people are like, in the 1970s, I mean, I assume Albert Hoffman probably was like, oh, this is revolutionary. And then it's like, in the 70s, people were like, oh, this is revolutionary. And now people are like, this is revolutionary. And like, well, it, it's revolutionary in the sense that a revolution is a cycle and it mm -hmm. will continue to revolve. And there will probably be some other point where it dips out and becomes less in the public consciousness and then comes back maybe stronger maybe maybe not so yeah i think what's revolutionary about this go around is that we've developed well lsd for example is something that can be produced in mass there's no shortage there's no shortage of lsd and uh, mdma for example this is these are chemical creations that don't rely on the slow growing nature of nature. Now, mushrooms are a totally different story. Mushrooms can be grown in abundance. And I think that's one of the beauties of that medicine, because there's no shortage. Uh, for example, ayahuasca and San Pedro and peyote, a lot of these other uh, indigenous like um, Bufo alvarius, the uh, Colorado river toad, I think is, is what it's called, uh, is also used for its, for its psychedelic properties. And all of these things are limited in their abilities to produce. So I don't generally resonate with uh, using them casually. They, they're very sacred medicines. And I don't resonate with using any psychedelic casually, but it is true that LSD, mushrooms, MDMA are readily available, are easy to produce in abundance, and there's no sustainability problems with them. Mm -hmm. So that's what I recommend that people use first if they're interested in trying psychedelic medicine. The San Pedro cactus I know is in danger of extinction because of people going after it. The person who sort of turned me on to everything is um, one of my good personal friends and uh, somebody who has been in lieu of a guru to me. He has been somebody who has helped me through a lot of emotional growth. He's somebody who's been through a lot of things that I have been through and he's a little bit older than me and when I met him, I was just like, this guy, this guy is just a fucking hippie is what I thought. I was like, this guy, just, he's just a, and it, it annoyed me because at the time I was very punk and, and there is a, there's a dichotomy between the punks and the hippies The mm. the punks hate the hippies and the hippies do not care. They are generally, I would say generally speaking there, but I met him and I remember being like a kid and being like, well, how do you find LSD when I was like, you know? 18 years old and I did couldn't and I'm glad that I didn't because I was not ready at the time 
And I met my friend Drew, and he was not somebody who talked about it a lot, but I knew from everybody else that Drew just had like a lifetime stockpile of psychedelics in his home. And one day I said, like, Drew, I've been mulling over this for like a year and a year and a half, and I'm not happy on the medicine that I'm on, and I I feel like I'm not creative anymore, but if I don't take it, I'm going to kill myself, and I would like to just try something else, so can you help me and guide me through this process? And he was like, very welcoming, taught me everything that I needed to know beforehand. I went in very educated on the substance, and he was like, well, what do you want to take? And he's like, well, I don't know. What, what can we take? He's like, dude, I've got it all. I've got all of it, literally all of it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Um, um, great person to be connected with. He's a, he's a good man. Um, but he, I had read up on mescaline and so we, we took some mescaline capsules and he and I, like he, he grows, um, some psychedelic cactuses in his home, not for, not for it because, you know, it's almost like what a long game to play to grow some cactuses for. Have a yeah, I have a San Pedro in my house too. Years. But years, yeah, but it's like you know, it's like something because he has reverence for it. He wants to like try and you know, that's something that he will continue to propagate. And um, but but going into it, he's like, yes, this is this is all of this that I will probably have ever because I'm not going to go out and get a bunch more of it. Um, you know, if you have it, you can use it, but. You know, it was never like he is very much like a. This is not a fun. This is not something we just do for fun. You know, mm-hmm. is it fun? It's fun. It is a fun process. Um, it can be. It can, it can be. be. It can be very difficult. But I would say, even when it's difficult, I would say from my moderate experience, even when it's difficult for me, it's still pretty fun. Like mm-hmm. I go through something really rough and transformative, and I have a deep realization about myself, and I'm like crying and weeping on the floor. Well, you know why it's fun for you because you're committed to your own self growth. Yeah, and you know there have been there have been even in my own experience there have been like I think after when I started I was like well there we go that fixed all of my problems and then you're like oh you get a little more experience you're like okay well that only time will tell you that that didn't fix any of your problems it'll fix some of your problems kind of yeah and then you have to really it just like puts the tools in front of you to fix your own problems. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not going to fix anything. It's just going to make it clear to you how you need to fix them. Yeah. The the common analogy or metaphor that I like to use to describe what psychedelics do is to imagine your life as a mountain and you're a climber, you're climbing this mountain and you're trying to get to enlightenment, which is theoretically at the top of the mountain. And so you're climbing, you're going up, but it's very fogged in. You can't really see where you're going. All you, all you know is kind of to go up. And the problem is that when there's so much fog, you can't tell if you're heading toward a false peak or a cliff or a ravine or just something else that's impassable and you are fumbling around. And so the psychedelic experience is a clearing away of that fog temporarily. So now you can see all that you can see from your position And you can kind of make a better guess as to how to get to a higher place. (laughs) Hi, no, (laughs) sorry for the bad joke, but you can see how to get to a higher place on the mountain, but then the fog is going to come back in and you have to kind of remember what those steps looked like 
And you're going to go for a while with the fog and you're going to kind of know where you're going. But then at a certain point, you're going to get to another part where you weren't able to see from before or where you weren't able to see before. And at that point, that's when I think it's time to have another psychedelic experience, clear away the fog again and see where you're going again. Can I ask you, are you like personally, are you on a schedule? Are you like, I do it about every X, Y, Z, or is it just when you feel it? How do you... How do you gauge when you need to have a trip? Well, I'm not on a schedule per se, but it is difficult to find time to have a psychedelic experience undisturbed. It takes five, six hours, and then you don't really want to have anything for the rest of the day. So it's something that you want to set aside the whole day for. And for most people, it's hard to set aside a whole day where you're not going to be interrupted. So for me, it happens maybe once a month that I can do this Mm -hmm. and... I'm not really that interested in taking psychedelic medicine more often than that, because if if you are, then I, I feel like you're not properly integrating the experience. You're just going to get the same message again the next time. It's like it's like clearing the fog from the same place twice. Well, you didn't learn anything new. Yeah, well, when you can have that spaciousness and when you can separate yourself from the person you are, when you can sit in your own experience and say, oh, well, I mean, when you start to give it any sort of thought and you just think it is a it's just a fucking trip that you're sitting here doing the thing that you're doing, you know, you're Mm -hmm. caught up in all of your your thoughts and you can't integrate anything that's happening to you because you're just thought after thought after thought. And when you sit there and be with it and you you like give yourself the space to to process your, I mean, I don't think that you necessarily have to take psychedelics to do that. I think they help, like they help put the tool in your, in your toolbox. I can say that like, I did not really understand what meditation was beforehand. And I had tried, I had really tried, you know? Yeah. But then like when you can get into like, there's a sense of that meditative state that I now understand a lot better. And I can, I can sit here and because I have like experienced myself from outside of this veil, I can now recognize the veil. You know, like this exactly. is just, uh, this is just a big facade. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah, yeah. You, well, you see that it's not. I feel like my life beforehand, it seemed like it was so serious, and now it's just not. It's, it's not, not that I, not that I am not sincere, but it's not serious. You know, like this is just a big play we're doing, kind of. You know, that's how mm-hmm. I feel about it. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely some of the way in which I've felt myself mature or become more easygoing through the use of psychedelics is I've, I've come to realize how nothing here in a way, nothing really matters. Uh, I can, I can just do whatever, whatever I want. Uh, I'm not beholden to anybody. And it just, it's, it's allowed me to become more empowered, um, more abundant, more, uh, in control of of how I want to live my life. Do you think that there are people who are turned off by that idea because they don't have it? Like people who are not self-empowered, 
Um, I don't want to necessarily say like people who have a victim complex. I think that's a mean way to say that. But I do think there are people who are like trapped inside of themselves who see yeah, somebody who has this sense of, I don't know, you can call it divine purpose. You just have, you have yourself and you realize that you can rely on yourself in a way that you weren't able to before. People mm-hmm. see that and they're insanely jealous of it. And they, yeah. they think that it's fake because it's not something that they have experienced. There's two topics that come up in this. One is the topic of victim mentality. And the other one is the topic of selfishness. And so I, I love to talk about these 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 points of interest here because victim mentality is it's 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 very very common in our society that people give away their power to other forces that could be other people or the government or the man whatever it is people like to be the victim because it's easier to give your power away and complain about it than it is to own that power and make conscious choices about how you're going to live your life. And so there's that part. And then there's the part of selfishness, which people see a lot of times that empowered people, they see them as as selfish. And what I want to offer is that selfishness is different from what most people think of selfishness as. What I consider selfish is not taking care of myself and doing what I need to do for myself, what makes me feel good but rather expecting somebody else to modify their behavior because I want it. That's selfish. Being Doing what I want for myself and taking care of myself, I don't think is selfish. I think it's part of learning how to care for anybody. You learn on, on yourself first. So when you can learn how to take care of yourself and give yourself the love and attention and nurturing that you yourself need, it's naturally going to extend to others. And so believing that I should put somebody else before myself to not be selfish is actually taking me off my center. It's giving away my agency and it's, it's, uh, it's actually not healthy in my, in my opinion. Along with the development of personal power, I think it's very important also to develop one's sense of compassion and one's sense of what is useful for the world. And what I'm going to say is, is okay, so what I, what, why do I believe we're even here on the planet? And that's, that's another belief that we can talk about, which is I believe we're here to reduce suffering and to, and to also enjoy ourselves. It's a, it's a two-part a two-part thing. And so and really the reduction of suffering is the increase increase of joy. And so when we reduce our own personal suffering, we are automatically reducing the suffering for the rest of the world. When we increase our own joy, we're increasing the joy of the rest of the world. And so I think it's really important to say that it's that, that we need to look at where we're putting this energy, this power that we've given ourselves through the empowerment process and make sure that we are spending it on things that are based in compassion, that are based in trust and love and not fear. Fear is, it's, it's just not helpful. I want to also talk about my beliefs around what, what is love, because love is a word that can mean so many things, but I believe that love in the highest, highest sense, this unconditional love is the same thing as complete non-resistance. 
It's the same thing as complete gratitude. And it's the same thing as no fear. It's the same thing as trust, total trust in everything that happens in life. And so if we can get to that place of making our decisions out of trust, knowing that everything is taken care of, knowing that everything is working in our favor, knowing that there's nothing to fear and we're not resisting anything that's happening. We're taking it, we're taking it in. We are making the best of it and we're continuing. That's complete, let's say a completely lubricated life. I, I like to say that gratitude is the lubricant of life. And so if you're living smoothly like that, if you're living in a way, in, in, in a place of, of gratitude, of trust, of compassion, of love, this is how we're going to use our power in the best possible way. I think that when you're living with that gratitude, not only is it, it's much easier to find the joy of life, but it's easier to find that joy in a way that is conducive to helping other people find that joy. Like the things that give me joy now are things that I know will help other people because you say like, you know, why, why are we here? Like, I think that we're the stewards of the earth. I don't just mean that environmentally. We're just here to take care of each other. And if you're not taking care of another person, you might have some sort of false sense of happiness, some ego trip about like, what might make you happy. But at the end of the day, you're going to get that thing and you're not really going to be that happy. But if you can find the joy in helping yes. other people find the joy, like that is, that is like the number one thing yes, that you can a do. A life of service. Opinion. And that's, that's kind of the ultimate way that, that we can make ourselves the happiest is if we are, if we are helping others. And the thing is, I also want to put a caveat out there that a lot of people like to talk about how they want to help others when they haven't helped themselves first. And so what ends up happening is a very misguided effort to help others, which actually is not helpful at all. It's just convoluting the other person's own personal journey. So it's, it's important to say that when we are seeing somebody else in suffering in their personal journey, it's not helpful for us to, to try to manipulate their journey to the extent that most of us think we're being helpful. A lot of times we just have to be there as a compassionate space holder, which means that we're witnessing them. We're allowing them to speak to us and share what's going on for them and reflect back to them what it is they said to us in a way that they can see themselves now. And this is actually the main reason why we are here on earth is is we are, we are the universe, we are the universal energy, source energy, manifesting in different forms, trying to know itself. And the only way that we can know ourselves, what we're like, is in the presence of others. And so by ourselves, we don't know what we're like. When we're in relationship, that's when we learn what we're like, because we have somebody to reflect ourselves back onto us. Being in vulnerable relationships with people, opening our, our heart up to them, and knowing knowing them seeing them deeply and allowing ourselves to be known and seen deeply by them is one of the ways to make the greatest joy possible because now now we know we can see ourselves reflected back I've been binging lately on Ancient Aliens show. Have you? It's a it's a it's a good show for this period of time because 
you can watch it and it's a little heady and also you don't have to take it too seriously. Right. Right. It's something I can just sit sit down with my lunch and just watch it. Um man, that guy from the Ancient Aliens meme. Yeah. That's that's a dream guest right there. If I could get just get that guy to sit down and talk to me for 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, he's great. I love him. Moshe, can I ask you a question? Of course. What's the weirdest thing you believe? All right. Well, I'm going to start with the fact that beliefs to me are ever changing. And for me to cling on to one belief, I've got to be ready to get to let that belief go. So I don't cling to a lot of beliefs very firmly, but there is one belief that I start all my other beliefs from. And that is the basic belief that belief creates reality. What you believe creates your reality. And I think that that is such a fundamental belief to the way that I aim to conduct my life. And I know that this belief could be false and it could be that that's that even that is not true, in which case, you know, now I'm a nihilist. But I choose the belief that helps me be empowered. That's kind of my goal in the beliefs that I choose is I want to own my power. I want to be able to make my own choices. I want to be able to do what I believe is right without having to look to anybody else for their approval. And so that that's what it means to me to own my power. When I start out with the belief that my beliefs create my reality, that already is empowering me to a degree that most other people don't even believe they have power. Once I have that belief, now I can choose to believe more things that empower me. I'm a big fan of the law of attraction. Abraham Hicks, I don't know if you've heard of Abraham Hicks. I suggest- Can I just say really quick? Yes. The episode that this will be, the episode beforehand we talked about the law of attraction. Oh. So you're good, no, but please, you're more than welcome to talk and explain Did it as much Abraham as Hicks? We- Yeah, I know, I, I wanna hear it, this is such a good, Damn, I'm like sitting here smiling. I'm like, this is such a good follow-up to the episode before this. <laughs> Go on. So the second belief that I choose to, to believe in is the law of attraction. Abraham Hicks is a very well-known speaker who I think kind of invented this idea of the law of attraction. She would say it's, it's a, a woman named Esther Hicks who channels wisdom from some other who knows where dimension, and she calls this wisdom Abraham. And so her shtick is called Abraham Hicks. And I suggest to anybody to go to YouTube, search Abraham Hicks, go to their YouTube channel, and watch. There's a five-part introduction to the law of attraction. It's, it's no more than an hour total. And it gives the basic idea of how what we put out there in terms of our vibration is exactly what we're going to get back. And so when we put out the vibration of being a victim, we're going to attract more situations in in which we're the victim. And when we put out the vibration that we are creating our reality and that we are empowered, everything is just going to mold itself to us because we have the power that we believe we have. I personally did not know about the law of attraction. And then I started having very similar thoughts in my psychedelic journey. I started essentially cultivating the thought that 
I was creating my reality because I think once you get into that space, you sort of realize that reality is completely subjective. Right. And yes, I, that was, that is one of those things that is incredibly empowering. And it's not that you're ignoring the reality of the situation around you. It's that you're choosing to make your reality work for you. And it's not to say that nothing will ever go wrong because things will go wrong, but you have the power to respond to those things that go wrong. And when you remove yourself from the situation a little bit and you put a little bit of space to breathe in between an action or a feeling and the way that you respond to it, even if you don't have total control, it gives you so much more control over the way that you steer the ship forward. Yes. You know, we're, we're traveling through a bunch of parallel realities all at one time. And as you sit here and you make the right decision that that creates a split and some other version of you is creating the wrong decision. And it is your choice to make the right decision. Right. You just have to know what that decision is. Exactly. When you look at something as an opportunity versus a problem, you're going to immediately start working on ways to make the best of it. It's it's like the adage of make, you know, when life hands you a lemon, make lemonade. But it's true. It's true. It's absolutely true. You can, when, when something happens that's unpleasant, uh, if you if you go immediately into oh man this happened again this keeps happening to me and that's the victim mentality and that's going to bring you more it's going to help it's going to help you I'm going to put help in quotes it's going to help you notice more times when you are in the victim situation but when you say oh well that's not exactly as I had expected but I'm sure there's something that's good about this. You know, what can we do with this? There's, there's an opportunity here. Just like COVID, this is not like anybody expected. Now you're at home with nothing to do. You can look at it as, oh man, I'm not earning any money. This sucks. I'm just home alone with nobody. Or you can say, okay, well, now is time for me to take care of myself. Now is time for me to develop ideas of what to do after this is all over. Now it's time to work on art projects by myself. Now it's time to cultivate my meditation practice. And you can make so much of it. And that is what brings us a life that is in alignment with our our highest desires. I think that desire is an interesting word for it. I don't necessarily believe for me, because when I think of my desires, I think that my ego clouds my desires. Whatever I have the opportunity to do, I think that maybe I'm just circling around your point, but when the thing that I have the opportunity to do, those opportunities begin to fade away whenever you start putting parameters on your own belief. Like you have the opportunity when you have the clarity to say, I I can do basically anything that I want to do. And it's not always going to be easy. You have to set a certain expectation that, that your ego might want somebody to recognize you for that thing, or it might want a certain amount of validation in that thing. But if you say to yourself, this is what I'm going to become. This is the person that I want to be. This is the highest version of myself that, you know, is attainable because it is it is the peak of attainment for me. You reverse engineer your future by putting the pieces together yes. around you. And that's sort of yes. part of what the law of attraction is too. Exactly. And it's so that what you described is what I like to call visualization, visualizing the, the reality that you want to exist. And this is definitely something that Abraham Hicks talks about a lot. I'm a big fan of theirs. I, I actually went on a cruise. They do these cruises where you can go and uh, go on a cruise and and on the sea days, they have uh, seminars where you just go and listen to them talk at, at people who have questions. And it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. But what you're describing is visualization. And when you can visualize your desired outcome, 
and you can feel that. Okay, and that's the that's the key, and that's what Abraham Hicks will tell you too. When you can feel what it feels like to be in that place, and you can well up that feeling, and realize that you have that feeling right now, you're going to accelerate the attraction of that reality to you at a speed that would never be possible just sitting and moping and worrying and lamenting your victim status. Whenever I want something, I kind of just have it in my mind as to what it looks like. And what that helps with is that I can then, it's it's kind of what happens then is now I know what it looks like. And so I already know what I'm looking for when it presents itself to me. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when I need a lot of times when I'm doing things around the house, like little home improvement projects, I need a little piece that goes here that looks like this. Well, what can I, what can I put there? And it just being able to visualize that spatial relationship, what that space looks like and what these pieces coming together look like and what I'm going to need to put in there to make it work. It really helps me to, find creative solutions to everyday problems. You know what that sounds like to me, and maybe this is going off on too much of a tangent, but it kind of uh, brings together this idea that I had previously that like the law of attraction is not that different than the force of will and magic, right? So it's almost like because you can conjure that image in that sense that you're a good visualizer, right? Like that's, that's using your force of will to put it into the material world. And even if the material world really in this sense is just the, the reality of the neurons firing inside of your brain, like that, that can bring you closer to that thing. I, Moshe, I think you could be a very powerful wizard is what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm, I, are you, have you ever practiced magic? Are you familiar with like the, the practice of magic? No, I have a friend who's really into it. Maybe I should talk with him, but uh, no, I, I I definitely believe that the creation of anything starts in the mind. You're not creating things in the physical form is only the last step. When, when we're creating in our mind, that is absolutely as important and as significant a part of the creation process as the creation of the physical, putting together the physical parts. And the more that we can flesh out our design in the mind, the quicker with, with less difficulty we can create them in the real world. And that's why I have been blessed to have a very easy life in general is because I feel like I've always been able to see things through to the nth degree in my mind and foresee whatever difficulties might come up with a certain design or a certain plan. But go on about magic. I'm curious what you have to say about that. There is definitely a force that we cannot see that works around us that shapes our reality. It's part of like, it's like a, you know, to me, it seems like a river. Like when I see myself, I see and, and like an, an infinite amount of energy flowing around mm-hmm. me and through me, like the air around us. And mm-hmm. it, I think that it's could be, it could be, it actually exist in our material consciousness and in our plane of existence in a way that we can't necessarily measure yet. Waves, for example, were just a theory until we were able to measure waves. Mm-hmm. When it's speaking to sound waves or microwaves or something like that. Yeah, And I think that just because we have not proven the existence of some sort of force around us that conjures our reality, I think that there are people who, because our minds are such powerful computers and conduits for change, like there's not really anything 
more complex or complicated or I mean just awe-inspiring to me is probably the only word that I can use than than the human mind, right? Yeah. So the fact that we you are essentially channeling part of your reality by seeing it in your mind. Mm-hmm. Magic is the same way that to be a a proper magician and to whether it be in, you know, like, you know, left-hand magic or right-hand magic or chaos magic, you have to take this unseen force that is around you and you have to figure out how to manipulate it. And the first step in manipulating it is that force of will of like seeing it and finding it. And so some people just have a more natural inclination to magic in the same way that some people have a more natural inclination to speaking with the dead, I will even say, you know, like in, in, in making contact with people in other planes. Um, I think there's definitely things that you can do to strengthen it and things that you can do that weaken it. Um, whether you're trying to or not, but, but I mean, I think it, I mean, it all sort of ties back into itself. Part of the theory of high strangeness is as much as I would like to be able to explain these things, our minds just simply can't comprehend them at this level. Mm -hmm. So I could just sit here and talk around in circles for hours. I think that we'll continue to learn more as time goes on. And, uh, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that it would be surprising at all. If 500 years from now, people look back at, 2020 and they're like can you believe people didn't used to believe in magic mm-hmm. like they believed in magic up until like the 1500s and then all of a sudden everybody became materialists and stopped believing in magic for like 500 years isn't that crazy yeah it's, it sounds to me like uh what you're describing is harnessing the life force energy that's in the air it's also called prana or chi and i actually believe that this life force energy is denser more densely available in the atmosphere in places of high vitality like the wilderness, which is why I really like to get out there in the wilderness because it just feels so good to me. And I think that being in that area is just allowing me to, so so to speak, harvest that prana and, and take advantage of it. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent thought. I, I wanted to also go back to the the thing you mentioned before about reality is subjective because this is something that most people I speak to do not believe. I think this is something that that I would consider a pretty radical belief as far as our society goes because when I say that our reality is totally subjective, people always turn to well what about gravity? Isn't that something that's a law for everyone? And so I believe that we can, that what we perceive as reality is filtered by our beliefs. And if we believe something to be true, we're going to see that as truth in our reality. And gravity is one of those things that is a consensus belief. We have everybody on earth believing in gravity. And so it's very, very hard. And and I do think that it is possible to counteract gravity by truly not believing in gravity. And this is kind of one of the more radical beliefs that I have. I cannot, I have not, I have not gotten to the point of mental training that I can not believe in gravity and have it be true. But I believe that, and I, I've heard many stories of, of very talented yogis who could be two places at the same time or could levitate. Uh, there's, there's a book called Autobiography of a Yogi, which I recommend to anybody to read. It's a fantastic story of 
Paramahansa Yogananda and his journey from India to bring yoga to the, to the West. And he describes some amazing, amazing feats performed by the gurus and the yogis in India. And it just opened my mind that there's so much possibility out there. And the thing is that when there's a belief that everybody agrees on, it's just that much more challenging to go in the face of that belief, to, to negate that belief for yourself. And that's what is required if you're going to make big changes. So I still believe that our realities are completely subjective. Whatever we want to believe, we're going to believe. Nobody can, nobody can disprove what we believe. That's the thing too, is, is everybody on the internet trying to prove each other wrong. It's never going to work. You're never going to prove anybody else wrong because people will see what they want to see and they're going to discount whatever goes in the face of that. Yeah. You know, one thing that I talked about on, uh, I don't know if this was on the last episode of the show or on an episode that's coming up when people say that they believe in Bigfoot, I don't necessarily believe in Bigfoot in the way that maybe like Harry and the Hendersons believes that there is a Bigfoot out there roaming through the Midwest. I can respect the idea of people who do believe it in that way. I also think that things are a lot more stranger and complicated than we can possibly realize. I think maybe Bigfoot could exist in the form of a tulpa, you know, a tulpa being an energy that is conjured and brought into our material plane via consensus agreement that it actually is out there. Uh, mm -hmm. In the same way that people think that it is weird to believe in Bigfoot that way, I can reverse engineer that same idea and say like, well, how do I know that like George W. Bush ever existed before we brought him into our reality? Because, Isn't you know, everything there, a tulpa? there is nothing, there's nothing, yeah, yeah, everything, everything is a tulpa. Like how am I not a tulpa to you right now? Mm -hmm. If we all, if we all agree agree that I am here and you agree that you are there, then we are coinciding in, in a plane. Right. Well, if somebody believes very earnestly in Bigfoot, they just might be overlapping with a plane in which that is a lot more real to them. And when you present any sort of evidence to the contrary, if you're somebody who has been out there and seen Bigfoot, you're never going to turn it off. You're just, that's, right. if you've seen it with your eyes, nothing that I can tell you about how it's not real is going to turn you away from that. Right. That is actually this, this idea of a tulpa. It, it just made me think about my belief about belief creating reality translates into things like discovery of new molecules, discovery of new medicines, because there's researchers out there that are the only people to study a specific molecule. They're the only people who've ever laid eyes on this molecule. They are in a very unique position to be able to write the truth of that molecule. So when you develop a new medicine, you can say this molecule is going to cure this specific condition. I'm going to try it and see how it goes. And the more conviction they have about the validity of this molecule, the more likely it is to work for them. And they gain conviction by going through several iterations of this process. But I think that the the more the more trust they have that they are actually creating this molecule's properties the more we're going to be able to learn how to develop new medicines and new substances new even textiles or or any type of any type of I don't even know what the word is but we're going to be able to develop all sorts of of new materials that are going to be used by science for all sorts of amazing things just by intending them into existence 
Yeah, the things that we make now, generally, I mean, I'm not saying things don't get made by accident, but like things that you go out to the store and buy, you know, for all intents and purposes are made with intent, which means before they got to that shelf, they were conjured in somebody's brain and, you know, or a fucking marketing team or whatever. And then they said, well, we're going to bring this thing to right here. And they might not be thinking of it in the same terms that you and I are, but like they are deciding that we are going to put the reality of xyz on the walmart shelf Mm -hmm. and that's just a sort of a silly example but like in the same way like you know if if a group of people say we are going to bring into this reality of existence a new uh ultra dense ultra light metal that can do xyz and and further our space travel or our ability to you know, like you said, our, our, our medicinal capabilities and our ability to cure and heal disease, mm-hmm. you have to have that idea and thought process. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to just make a medicine by not thinking about it and not putting that energy out into the right. ionosphere. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you were powerful enough with your prayers, you could, I believe you could just create the medicine on your first try. You could say, uh, you know, please allow me to be guided to the right source of materials to make this happen. And I think that's when you ask, for example, I'm not sure if, are you familiar with ayahuasca and the South American? I am. I am not as familiar with ayahuasca as I would like to be in that it has not been inside of my, my body, but I'm very familiar with it for the listeners as well. Um, Ayahuasca is a psychedelic medicine that originates in Peru, uh, South America. It's a brew that's formed by Banisteri Kapi. It's a a vine known as ayahuasca in conjunction with another root that contains DMT. And that's many times that's, uh, well, it's, it's a variety of different plants. Acacia confucia is used sometimes. Um, but any, in any case, you brew these two plants together and you get an incredibly powerful psychedelic medicine that is really unlike anything else that I've experienced. And the question is, how did the shamans or the, I'll not use that word because it's actually not the right word for South American healers, but the curanderos, the ayahuasqueros of South America, how did they how did they figure this out that you could brew these two things together, that you could put these two plants together and it would make this very powerful medicine? And they do they they've done this for all sorts of different medicines, making concoctions of different medicine, different plants to to come together and form medicines. And a lot a lot of times they will tell you that the plant simply told them. And that's all there is to it. It's not any sort of scientific thing for them. It's an intuitive thing. It's listening to the plants. I believe in that. I, I, I believe that's true and that the intuition and allowing ourselves to be guided, becoming in contact with our intuition is, is so much more powerful than, than we know. We can, uh, we can use that to bring to us whatever it is that we're desiring. We, we don't even have to work for it if we trust fully that our intuition is going to guide us in the right direction to get it. 
Moshe? Al. Do you have anything to promote? Oh, I didn't know you were going to ask me to promote something. <laughs> oh. You have things I brought you on because I know you're a man with things to promote. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. <laughs> okay, Al, thank you. I, um, I really appreciate you having me on the show. And I wanted to take this opportunity to let people know that we do have a thriving psychedelic community in Atlanta. It's called Psy Atlanta. That's spelled P-S-Y. That's the first three letters of psychedelic. And then Atlanta.org, O-R-G. So you go to SciAtlanta.org. We have a meetup group. Um, right now during COVID, we're having online meetups. Uh, but when COVID's over, we're going to be having typically a couple meetups, a couple different meetups per week. Um, and so I encourage you to come out, anybody to come out who's interested in learning more and who's interested in connecting with other psychedelic people. We are not a political organization. We aim strictly to bring support to others, uh, to educate, and as a social gathering place. So come on and, and join us. Well, Moshe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I'm sure we will have you on again. This has been even more far out of a discussion than I could have possibly imagined. And, uh, and, and thank you. And I'm sure I'll be meeting up with you soon. Thank you so much, Al. I appreciate you. High Strangeness is an unfunny production. Our theme song is To Wake Up by Crystal Coast from the album 3. Also, all of our other music is from Crystal Coast as well. If you have a question or you just want to tell me some dumb shit, email highstrangecast at gmail.com. You can find me, Al Mirabella, on Twitter at at unfunny underscore official. Or you can follow our show at at highstrangecast. If you like the pod, consider telling a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, folks, stay safe, stay stranger. <laughs>